0: looking at Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 26. If you're not sure where that is in your Bible, that's about three-fourths of the way through. Get to the New Testament, you'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're in Mark. Big numbers are the chapters, little numbers are the verses. So we're in Mark chapter 14, starting in... Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for the gift that it is to consider your word. We have heard your words, and those are infallible, those are inerrant, those are true, those are reliable and trustworthy. Now, as I begin to share my words, pray that I would be consistent with your words, that I would say what you say. Lord, give me wisdom on how to do that. Lord, anything that I say that is not consistent with your words, please have the hearers, our church, totally forget that. And Lord, we pray for other members of our church, other regular tenders, members who are not able to be with us. Think of the Nielsen's as they are up in Michigan, having a doctor appointment, a very important doctor appointment for Rosie. Lord, we pray that doctor appointment would bring about great news. Thank you for their endurance, everything that they've gone through, with the challenges. God, we ask that you would bring them some relief, that this doctor point would be a great encouragement to them. We pray for Buzz Coker as he's preaching at a fellow church, uh, Gethsemane Baptist Church up in Marengo. God, we ask that you would give him your words and that he would faithfully proclaim Christ crucified and that the congregation of Gethsemane would be edified. God, we pray for the Fagans. Thank you for the gift of a fifth child, Alice Arwen Fagan, born just a few days ago. God, thank you for her health. Thank you for Megan's health. We pray that Megan would recover well and that you would help the Fagan family transition this new chapter of life. God, we pray for the hearings as they travel back from Virginia. Keep them safe, especially after a snowstorm. The roads can be dangerous or Protect them. Lord, we pray for Providence Baptist Church here in Westerville. Lord, we are grateful for their faithful proclamation of Christ, faithful proclamation of the gospel, and we ask that you would allow them to see fruit, that their people would be sharpened, and that this morning, you would prepare their people to hear the gospel from Pastor Brad. And God, as we talk about the roads, we wanna thank you for the men and women to plow our roads, Lord, something that we take for granted. Thank you for them going out in dangerous conditions so that we may be able to gather here safely. We pray for your blessing on them here in Westerville, Columbus, and throughout. And God, we now ask that by your Holy Spirit you would meet with us, that you would give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see as we look at your text. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So many of you know me, I, um, many of you know that I am not a farmer. I, I grew up on a hobby farm, but there wasn't much farming going on. We had a lot of animals, horses, miniature horses, llamas, chickens, sheep, all the fun stuff, dogs, cats. Uh, but there wasn't a lot of cultivating of crops or livestock. My, my father-in-law, on the other hand, has basically done that his whole life. He became a farmer when he was 15 and has continued to do so. And one of the unique things about farmers, if you think about it, they are raising things up, whether that's crops or whether that's livestock, they're raising it up to die. They're trying to give it the, the best possible death, the most efficient, the most get the maximum uh, return from this life, whether it's a crop or whether it's a livestock, whatever it is, they're trying to raise it up so that it would die and provide great benefit to those who partake in it life we get to, to eat because there are farmers throughout the country who provide crops who provide your steak your burgers and i'm grateful for that now as we look at today's text how am i going to transition that to this as we look at today's text we see christ being raised up for an explicit purpose and he's being raised up so that he may die. and So that all those who partake in him may have maximum benefit, great life. So the question is, when we look at this passage, question that some liberal theologians have asked and argued against is, was it necessary for Christ to die? Could he not have just been a perfectly righteous man? And I would submit to you that, yes, it is necessary. However, it's in his betrayal and in his death where we find life. And outside of his betrayal and outside of his death, we do not have life. So in Christ's betrayal and in his death, we find life. And and just taking a a peek at this passage, as we read through it, some of you may have already recognized, but there is great hope in this passage for those who may be unsure of God's sovereign hand in a painful situation. And we'll unpack that as we look at Christ and we look at his disciples and the betrayal that's coming. But there is hope for those who may be unsure of God's sovereign hand in painful seasons. Maybe you're not in a painful season. And this passage will help equip us for the day that we do go through that. Pastor, that I grew up. Under said that you're always in one of three places. You're either in the midst of a trial, coming out of a trial, or heading into a trial. You're always in one of those three places. You're in it, you're on your way out of it, or you're on your way into it. And so this passage, if you find yourself in it, will provide hope. This passage, if you are not in a trial, will equip you for when you find yourself in one. And so some some background, as we continue to go through Mark, if you've been with us any amount of time, you recognize that our steady diet has been marching through the book of Mark. Just by way of reminder, it was written by Peter's attendant, John Mark, and it was written in the 50s or 60s AD, depending on who you ask. And the major theme that I've been putting before you guys is that it is God restoring his wayward people. This book, what John Mark is trying to get across is that God is and has been restoring his wayward people and he has been faithful and steadfast in that and now we get to see explicitly how he is going to do that very thing last week we looked at verses 1 through 11 talks about the devotion that was displayed by the three parties the religious leaders who were devoted to power mary who was devoted to jesus and judas who was devoted to himself and now we look at these verses 12 through 26 And the unique thing about these verses is that we are now in the last 24 hours of Jesus's life, his ministry. Within 24 hours, he'll be hung on the cross and he'll be buried. He will raise on the third day after that. But right now, he's in the last 24 hours of his earthly life. And so we have four points, which you can find in your bulletin, four different aspects that I want us to see regarding the Passover. It's a big deal. And for those who like to know the points ahead of time, we're looking at the Passover preparation, Passover betrayal, Passover promise, and Passover hope. Let's look at that first one, Passover preparation. So this, as, as we were talking about, the, the final week of Jesus' life is called Passion Week or Holy Week. And we've marched through each one. On, on uh, Sunday, he enters into Jerusalem. And as he continues to go out, he curses a fig tree. And he overturns tables in the, in the temple. And we move forward. And we eventually get to Wednesday where he's arguing with a lot of the religious leaders. And they ask him a bunch of questions. He responds. And he silences them with his one question that he asked them. And now Thursday, we see... Jesus being anointed by Mary with that very expensive jar of perfume. And now we're at Thursday night. And Thursday night is actually the way that the Jewish days would work. Their days would start right when the sun went down. So the sun went down, that previous day is done. The next day has started. And so Thursday night, even though for us we'd still say it's technically Thursday, for the Jewish calendar, that's the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It is Passover. And so his disciples are preparing, and we read there, on the first day of Unleavened Bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So the disciples had just sacrificed the lamb, as was custom. So they were to sacrifice the lamb on Thursday evening, right when Passover started, and then they were to come back and enjoy a feast together a Passover meal, a feast of unleavened bread. And we talked about last week how this was essentially a feast of cleanliness. Leaven was br- taken from, from batch of dough to batch of dough to batch of dough. And each one, they take a little bit from the previous one and put it in. And so when you have the feast of unleavened bread, it's saying, don't take leaven from the previous batch. This is a clean slate. And so the feast of unleavened bread was essentially a feast of cleanliness. And so Jesus as he's telling his disciples to go prepare this, they've already sacrificed the lamb, and now they're looking for a place to have this meal that comes after the temple sacrifice. Jesus tells them something that seems kind of strange. He says, look for a man carrying a jar of water. Now, remember we were talking about the influx of people around Passover into Jerusalem, and in AD 70, when there was General Titus who came in and, did mass, mass genocide. There were over 1.1 million people killed. So there's a lot of people in Jerusalem. And so to say, hey, about a million people, we want you to find a guy carrying a jar of water. That's a tall order. It's kind of difficult, right? And at first glance, it would seem very difficult. However, carrying water was women's work in that culture. Men typically did not carry water. And so to find a man or just to see a man carrying a jar of water, that would raise some flags in people's minds. Why is he doing that? And so to to say find a man carrying a jar of water was a little bit easier than what we give it credit for. Now, they end up finding the man. And so this is either Jesus preparing it beforehand, saying, hey, he's coordinating this with the guy carrying the water and with the owner of the house beforehand, or it's simply an act of divine miracle of Jesus showing there's going to be a guy and he's going to, he's going to know and you're going to, he's going to take you back to the house and the owner of the house will know. It could be either and commentators are split. The point, though, is that the disciples here are preparing the final Passover. They don't realize it, but this is the final Passover. Passover. Now, Jews would continue to have Passover meals, those who denied Christ, but those who embraced him recognized that that was the final Passover meal. Now, I've mentioned Passover several times, so it's going to do us some benefit to, to know what we mean by Passover. And so we covered this last week, but I'll also just go a little bit quicker this week. Passover was a reminder of what God did for his people when they were enslaved in Egypt. So he told Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. A bunch of plagues came, and eventually the final plague was the killing of the firstborn in all of the land of Egypt. And God said, this is going to happen to every household. I'm going to strike down the firstborn male in every household. However, Israel, if you don't want that to happen to you, then I need you to sacrifice a spotless lamb. And then with that lamb that was sacrificed, take the blood and put it over your doorpost. Now, this is an act of faith. Okay, we believe the God of Israel. We believe what Yahweh is saying here. We're going to sacrifice the spotless lamb. And we're going to display that faith by putting the blood over our household. And then everyone in that household is spared. Everyone in that household of faith. So the disciples here, So, we consider Passover, where... God did this to free the people of Israel from their bondage. And now we are back at Passover and we're seeing this, this meal to remember what he has done to free his people through the blood of a spotless lamb. We now are reminded that the disciples here are preparing the final Passover. They're doing it unknowingly. But Jesus, his whole life, has knowingly been preparing to be the final Passover lamb. So this Passover has been prepared. His disciples are preparing the final one unknowingly. Jesus is doing it knowingly. Jesus is forming a greater household of faith. Just like in the Old Testament, the household of faith was marked by the blood of the lamb. It's their faith expressed that we believe that Yahweh is going to do what he says he's going to do. So we're going to sacrifice the lamb. We're going to do a physical display of our faith in that. And they were spared. Now, Jesus is creating a greater household of faith marked by his blood, him being the perfect spotless Passover lamb. And if Jesus is the perfect spotless Passover lamb, the question is, are you trusting in his blood and his blood alone to protect you from God's just wrath? Are we trusting his blood and his blood alone? Not church attendance, not tithing, not community group attendance, not what you do in society to show people that you're a nice guy. Are you trusting in the shed blood of Christ and Christ alone to take away your sin, to spare you from God's coming judgment? If you are in Christ, then your sin was nailed to the cross, with Christ. And if you are in Christ, then your sin was buried with Christ in the grave. You will still fall and you will still sin, but you are no longer identified by your sin. Your sin's been buried. That's why when we confess our sin to God, He is willing and He is pleased to forgive because He sees His Son and the price that His Son paid to take away your sin. And if you are united to Christ, this spotless lamb, and you claim his blood, then then, then God will see you as spotless. So we see the Passover being prepared, this final Passover, the disciples unknowingly and Christ knowingly. And now we see where things get interesting in this passage with the Passover betrayal. Likely, Jesus and his disciples had probably had a Passover meal before. They've been together for three years. The Passover comes every year. They've probably had this meal before. Now, this right here is where things get very interesting because Jesus has an announcement. And Jesus says in verse 18, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Jesus, the one that the disciples have been following, the one who the disciples have put their lives on the line for, the one that the disciples have put their hope in, says, one of you are going to betray me. And they're sorrowful. They know that there are enemies outside of the walls. Remember, they're in this upper room. They're enjoying the Passover meal together. And while they're sitting, reclining at tables, verse 18 says, as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus says, one of you are going to betray me. It wouldn't have been surprising if an enemy of, of Jesus from the outside would have found a way to deliver him into the enemy's hands. But what's so surprising about it is that it's one of the 12. It's not just a, a follower of him. There, at this point, there are thousands of people who have claimed that they are, want to follow Jesus, but it's one in the inner circle, one of the 12 that he says is going to betray him. And Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, tells us that it, that it was Judas, which isn't entirely surprising. If we look at verses 10 through 11 that we went over last week, Judas is upset, and so he went to the religious leaders looking for a way to betray Jesus, and they give him a little bit of silver. Text says 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus, after making this announcement, after the disciples are sorrowful and are asking, is, is it I, is it I? And he says it's one of the twelve. Jesus responds in a way that seems like he's not that rattled by it. He knows that within 24 hours, he's going to experience excruciating an excruciating death. He knows that his time is very limited, but he doesn't seem rattled. Look at verse 21. It says, for the son of man goes as it is written of him. The son of man goes as It is written of him. Jesus isn't rattled because Jesus knows what God has said. He knows the story. He's been praying for this his whole life. Doesn't mean that he doesn't feel the pain, but doesn't change his trajectory. He's still going forward because he knows what God has said. Question this morning is, do you know what God has said? Whether you're in a trial whether you're heading toward one. Are you equipped with what God has said? His word is there to train you in righteousness so that you may be equipped. Do we know what his word says? Is his word a comfort in trial? Or is it someone else's word? Maybe a, a close friend, maybe a family member, maybe a spouse. And that's not to say that the Lord can't use those. Those are gifts, evidences of God's grace in your life. However, what is your ultimate comfort in? So Jesus says, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. So the question is, what was written of him? What's Jesus referring to? He's likely referring to Psalm 55, verses 12 through 13, which say, for it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. We just talked about it. It's not someone outside the walls, someone within the walls. It's not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. Jesus knows that's his companion, a familiar friend who's getting ready to give him up. Jesus feels the pain of betrayal. Jesus knows that pain. However, he's able to continue in his trajectory because he knows what God has said. That comforts him. That equips him to go through what he knows is going to be the most difficult part of his life. But he has more to say. Continue in verse 21. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. That's a bold thing to say. It would literally be better for Judas if he was never born. This is one of the reasons why Judas is someone. So a little bit of background. Danielle and I are expecting a son. We're excited about that in July. It's already been made public. This isn't the announcement or anything like that. But we're excited about that. And we are kicking around names. And that in itself has been a fun process. And I have a kind of a strong opinion. She does too. And so we are trying to meet somewhere in the middle. But I will tell you, one of the names that is not on the table (laughs) is Judas. (laughs) That name hasn't come up. It won't come up reason is because we never read about Judas being restored. Judas is a warning to all of us that we can walk intimately with God's people perhaps for years at a time and still not know him and still be lost in our sin. Judas should be a warning for us. Judas betrayed Jesus, because Judas loved something more than he loved Jesus. It's an immeasurable offense to love the creation more than the creator. We minimize our sin. I think it's not that big of a deal. God shouldn't be that upset about it. It's because we have a small view of who God is and how holy he is. When we choose his creation, something significantly less valuable than the one who created it. That's a great offense to the Creator. Finley's fourth birthday is coming up this month. We're excited to, to celebrate with her and plan on getting her some gifts. It would be discouraging if Finley began to love those gifts more than she loved the givers of the gifts. Now, granted, she's turning four, so there might be a couple days where she does love the gifts <laughs> a little bit more than the giver of the gift, but if her life was marked by that, it would be discouraging so that she doesn't recognize the love that the giver of the gift has for her and she instead devotes her love to that specific gift. But we do that all the time with God. And if we love anything more than God, then just like Judas, it would be better for us if we had never been born. If we love anything more than we love God, it would be better for us to have never been born because that means we love an idol more than we love the true and living God. And if we love an idol more than the true and living God, then we are destined to an eternity apart from the true and living God. The only part of him that we will experience for eternity is his just wrath. So we must love Jesus must love God more than we love anything else. Otherwise, we're in the same company as Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus because Jesus was not Judas's first love. We are faithful to that which we love most. Every single one of us. The way we arrange our schedules, the way we spend our money the way we spend our time, we are faithful to that which we love most. And sooner or later, your greatest love is going to compete with your love for Christ. Judas went three years walking with Christ. but Then it came to a point where his greatest love competed with Christ and his greatest love won. He was faithful to his greatest love we are faithful to what we love most. So if Jesus is not our first love this morning, if there's anything else that could be our first love, we will eventually find ourselves being faithful to that over being faithful to Christ. So we need to take a mental inventory. We need to take a spiritual inventory. Lord, where, where are my greatest loves? Where do I spend my time? How do I spend my money? Where do I, how do I spend my free time? What is it that my devotion is going to? It's helpful to take those inventories and consider. And if there is anything in there that, that the Lord reveals to us that is a greater love than Christ, and that's a great opportunity for us to repent, to confess that to God. He'll forgive. Brother, sister, listen. Any conviction, if you claim Christ, if you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, any conviction that you find yourself having is not meant to keep you from God. It's meant to bring you closer to him. That's a gift of the Holy Spirit, to provide conviction in an area. If there's any part of your heart, any part of your life that appears to have greater love and affection to something other than Jesus, then the Holy Spirit is kind to convict you of that. And that conviction is not meant for you to just go sit and wallow and feel bad about how you failed. That conviction is meant to bring you closer to God. Satan wants to convince you not to bring it to the Lord. He will give you every reason to not confess your sin. Oh, I don't have enough time. I, I, this is a pretty big sin. I, I should really have like a half hour of prayer time and, followed by another 45 minutes of Bible reading if I really want to feel like I'm confessing my sin. I, I only have 10 minutes, so I'll do it later. Satan will do whatever he can. He'll use even good things in your life to keep you from Repentance. the Holy Spirit has convicted you of anything that might be a greater love for Christ in your life than wherever you are, no matter how much time you have, confess that to God. Hold tightly to the one who has gone before you and experienced betrayal. If you feel like you have been betrayed, if you feel like you are having a relationship that is painful, Jesus has gone before you. Jesus has felt that pain. Hold tightly to him. Fix your eyes on him. He was able to walk through it because he knew what God had said. Not only do we have the gift of what God has said, but we now have the example of Jesus before us. Hold tightly to Christ. If you have felt the pain of betrayal, if you have felt the pain of a painful relationship gone that ended up in a way that you didn't expect it to end up, you are in good company with Christ. Okay. That's Passover betrayal. Now let's move over to Passover promise. And so in this betrayal, we find a great promise. Jesus elaborates the results of this betrayal. So what does he say? He says he will die. So, okay, they were preparing for the Passover. Things are pretty normal, right? This is kind of a normal thing that Jews do. They're preparing for the Passover. This is part of normal life. And then they have the Passover. Jesus says, hey, one of you guys is going to betray me. Okay, so now it just got interesting, but then it goes even more because when he said that one of them is going to betray him, that didn't instantly mean death. And so now he elaborates. He says that he will die. And he says that by saying his body will be broken and his blood will be poured out. Jesus is making the point that in his betrayal, he will, in fact, die. But in his death, a new promise. A new covenant is going to be established. And it's in this new covenant where life is found. God uses this betrayal of Judas and the inexpressible pain that comes with it to bring about inexpressible joy and new life. God is always working for the good of his people. We see this in Genesis 50, when Joseph, after being sold into slavery and all the events that come after that, he's now essentially second in command in the land of Egypt. He says to his brothers who sold him into slavery, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Roman, Paul puts it in Romans. we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now I need to clarify, I need to clarify it in the most loving and and gentle way that I can. That those passages, especially the Romans 8.28 one, apply to those who love God, not everyone. We know that for those who love God, All things work together for good. That does not mean every person. God works all these things for good for his people. Does not mean that we're going to have an easy life either. But it'll be our ultimate good. Doesn't mean that every situation, even difficult situations, is somehow good. We just have to flip enough rocks to find out how this is good. Doesn't mean that either. Means that God will use even the terrible situations, even the, the... painful circumstances to bring about a greater ultimate good in your life. You will still go through difficult times. But for those who love God, he is working a greater good in your life. Now, we get into the Lord's Supper, where Jesus begins to say, he says, take He took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And right before that, he said, take, this is my body. And so now we, we talk about the Lord's Supper every week. Okay. And we do that so that we have a better understanding of what it is, but it's not every week that the Lord's Supper is right here in our text. So I'm going to take a minute to elaborate a little bit more on the Lord's Supper, what it is not and what it is. So the Lord's Supper is not Christ's literal body. It's not his literal flesh and literal blood. Jesus has said previously, I'm the door, and we don't have any debates about whether or not he's a literal door. He said, I'm the vine. We don't have debates about whether he's the literal vine. Jesus is saying this is a sign. In Luke's gospel, in Paul and 1 Corinthians, he says, do this in remembrance of me. So this is Jesus giving us a sign to remember what he has accomplished as the final Passover lamb. Something else that it's not, it's not a re-sacrificing of Christ. Christ on the cross said, it is finished. The sacrifices are done. Sacrificial system is done. All of the sacrifices of the Old Testament were pointing to the great sacrifice that needed to happen. Jesus was the only perfectly spotless sacrifice provided. Jesus is perfectly righteous. And so as a perfectly righteous one, his sacrifice is the last sacrifice that's required. It's not a re-sacrificing of Christ, it's a remembering. Okay, so what is the Lord's Supper? So the Lord's Supper, here's a brief definition, is a sign given to the universal church to identify the members of the universal church. When I say universal, I mean all Christians, all times, not just Citizens Church here. So for the church, there are three things. It's to commune with Christ and each other. It's to commemorate Christ's death, to remember it. And it's to anticipate Christ's return. If you look in verse 25, he says, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying that there's a kingdom coming and this final Passover meal, I'm not gonna partake in this meal again until the kingdom of God, until I return and bring the kingdom and there's a new heavens and there's a new earth established. It's to commune with Christ and each other, to commemorate Christ's death and to anticipate Christ's return. So each time we take the Lord's Supper together, we're communing with Christ and one another. We're remembering what he has done, and we're anticipating that he's going to come back because that little wafer does not fill us up. It's called the Lord's Supper, not the Lord's Snack. And that little wafer is hard to justify as a supper, but it's intentionally meant to keep us hungry because there's a feast coming, the wedding supper of the Lamb, the Passover Lamb, where we will be able to enjoy, where we'll be able to take part, and we will be entirely satisfied for all of eternity. And for the believer, the Lord's Supper is publicly identifying with Christ's broken body and shed blood as the only means of our justification. It's a public identification. It's also the believer's renewing of his or her commitment to Christ and his people. So baptism is that initial sign where we publicly identify with Christ And the Lord's Supper is our ongoing sign where we publicly identify with Christ and we renew our commitment to him. It's a family meal. The Lord's Supper is the meal. Baptism is the seat at the table. So both are given as signs to the church and to individuals to identify with Christ's body. That's why um, in historic churches, older churches, when they would remove someone from membership, they would say that they are excommunicated essentially saying they're excommunicated. They're excommunioned. They're no longer allowed to partake in the Lord's Supper because that is a public identification that the church gives to the individual and the individual gives to the church that they are following Christ still, that they are committed to Christ. And if the individual has chosen their sin rather than Christ, then they should not partake in the sign that identifies them with Christ. That's where you get that term excommunication. It's excommunication, essentially. If you're looking for a better understanding of that, this little book, Understanding the Lord's Supper. There's a couple copies in the back. You can check it out for free. It's very thin. My kind of books. Very short. Very helpful as well. Uh, Highly recommend. And if they're all gone, then let me know. We'll get some more in. So, back to my notes. If not for Jesus' betrayal... We don't have any of this. We don't have this new covenant, this new promise of life. If not for Jesus' betrayal, he doesn't fall into the hands of his enemies. If not for Jesus' betrayal, his body isn't offered up. If not for Jesus' betrayal, his blood isn't poured out. The new covenant is not established. And the new covenant, as theologians will call it, is a covenant of grace. Previously, all the other covenants, all the other promises that God made were covenants of work, covenants of works. And so, You have to do this for life. Now the covenant of grace says, the Lord is saying, I have provided one who has done the work. All you need to do is believe. But apart from his betrayal, apart from his death, that new covenant never is established because his body isn't broken and his blood isn't poured out. Jesus' betrayal was necessary for the promise of life. So as we... Consider Christ. We see the pain that he went through or a close companion betrays him. I would encourage you, whether you're in a trial or headed toward one, bring your hurt to God. He can empathize with you. He has felt the pain that you are going through. and Likely he's felt it on a higher degree. Bring it to him. Don't feel like you can't bring that to Christ. And trust him to work in ways that you could not imagine. It might not be your conclusion of how you think he should work. It might not be your timing of how you think the time frame should look. But trust that the Lord is working. If you love God, if you are in Christ, he is using this situation in some way to bring about your ultimate good. And the fourth point there, so we see this, Passover promise fulfilled with Christ, we now see after Jesus is is about to be betrayed, and he makes this known to everybody, we now see a great hope. And what I mean by that in verse 26, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So how does that one verse point to a great hope? We have to understand some of the historical context. Whenever they would have the, the Passover feast, They would sing what's called the Hallel. And what that is, is after the meal, the Jewish families would sing a few hymns together. And typically, it would be the final portion of the Hallel. Now, the Hallel was um, Psalms 113 to 118. So six Psalms. And when they were done eating, they wouldn't sing all six, but they would sing the final portion of it. So maybe the last two or three. The last Psalm of that is Psalm 118. So this was likely the final thing that they sang before going out to the Mount of Olives. I'm going to read various verses of them. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's a fairly long psalm. But as I read it, listen. Listen to these words. Consider Christ in that upper room, knowing what's about to happen to him as the final Passover lamb, what he's about to experience in less than 24 hours, and consider him with his friends singing these words. "O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. How true is that? He knows what Judas is about to do with him. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. He's about to be crucified. He says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar, Jesus being that sacrifice. Verse 28, you are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, and this is how it ends. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. This is our Savior who's getting ready to go die an excruciating death. And he's saying, give thanks to the Lord. For he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Jesus' hope in the midst of betrayal and in the midst of death was not in his present circumstance. It was in the final verse of that hymn. Thanks to the Lord. For he is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. God, from the beginning of your Bible, has promised to save his people. See this? first the seeds of it in Genesis 3:15, and throughout your Bible as you continue to read we see various ways that God has fulfilled this and we see it ultimately culminating in the person of Jesus and his finished work we no longer have to work for salvation he has done it on our behalf we still pursue righteousness but the perfect righteousness needed to be made right with God has been done in our Savior his hope It's in the goodness and steadfast love of the Lord, of Yahweh. So if you feel betrayed today, if you feel hurt by a relationship, maybe you're heading into something like that. Maybe your relationship has become something you never expected. Jesus provides hope. Jesus has felt this. And Jesus sings, for he is good. The Lord's steadfast love endures forever. So just like a seed that farmers will will bury to bring about a crop, Jesus is a buried seed to bring about greater life. In betrayal and death, in Christ's betrayal and in Christ's death, we find life. Jesus's death was necessary because apart from it, the new covenant isn't established apart from we continue to try to work for salvation, only to fall short. Jesus knew that death would not be the final word because death had no claim on him. Death is a result of sin. Jesus had no sin. He took sin upon himself on the cross. And so he died. However, death had no claim on him because he had no sin of his own. And so Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. And if we are united with Christ, I said earlier, that your sins were nailed to him on the cross and buried with him in the ground. If we are united with Christ, then just as Christ raised, we too have a promise of resurrection. Not because of work that we've done, but because of what Christ has done. If you are united with him, then death has no claim on you. You will experience eternal life if you repent of your sin and unite yourself to Christ, our final Passover lamb. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your steadfast love. Thank you for being good. Thank you that we can sing with Christ that I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. We shall look in triumph. That triumph is coming in, in Jesus, and Lord, that's because of the great plan that you have made, the great salvation that you have provided through Christ. Lord, help us to know, and help us to not just know, but to experience that it is far better to take refuge in you than it is to trust in man. Thank you for faithful friends. Thank you for faithful family. Thank you for those gifts. But help us to remember that it is far better to trust in you. Jesus, thank you for enduring betrayal and enduring death so that we can have life. Thank you for your great love for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.